Um, yeah, church, let's, let's just never be a church that's in a rush. Hey. I think hey, we're a big church, we're a loud church. If you're visiting here, if it's your first few times, we're loud. We're not, not particularly quiet church. It'll be loud when the kids are in. It'll be loud when people are arriving. There's life. It's, uh, you know, it's, what is it? It's, it's messy in the playgrounds and it's nice and quiet in the graveyards. And, um, and you know, we're not, a, we're not a graveyard. So it's not quiet because... It's, but I just think we just need to make sure as well that we don't miss that sometimes God is doing bits in gaps. And sometimes we can just fly out and in our loudness and our quickness and in our speeds and in our plans and in our things that we do, we can miss the God who works in sometimes those still little moments of pause. And we just got to be looking for them. They happen in everyday life. They don't just happen in this room. Don't only think the only place you'll ever encounter God is in worship in this space. Actually, it's that God is the God of the universe. And he longs to meet us in our homes and in our quiet places, in our small groups, in our friendships, in our devotional times, and our reading of the word and our prayer. So we've got to be looking and listening to God's. You know, the world needs that. It needs followers of Jesus who hear God's voice and who respond to it. So we've got to be listening. Get your ears open. Um, it's a real joy this morning to have Lex and Joe with us. Lex, do you want to come and join us for a second? Have you got that, the older picture? Go, no, go back. Oh, Look at come on. That's the, that's the real Lex. There he is. Look at that. <laughs> Look at the size Whoa. of those glasses. Look at that. I'll tell you what, that's trendy again now. You yeah. know, that's, it's done full circle. I know, mate. we're lapping ourselves <laughs> now, aren't we? It's gone full circle. Please take that down. That is mildly offensive. <laughs> that's a bit better. <laughs> But it's, it's so lovely. So I, I'd never really met Lex and Joe until we had dinner last night. And um, as we were having, I was at a conference and we got home and we had a power cut because the water was leaking into one of our outside plugs. And so Wendy was halfway through cooking dinner for Lex and Joe and the oven stopped working. So fortunately, you know, we got Cypriot neighbours. So we took it to the Cypriot neighbours and they put it in their oven instead and cooked. And then we were running food backwards and forwards across the street. There's a Greek. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's Greeks amongst mm. us. Um, but yeah, not Greek. <laughs> I'd, I'd never met Lex and Joe, really. I knew of them, but I'd never met them. And I think what you realise is in, in local church, so Lex and Joe were part of this church when it first began. And we're brought here with a group of people to come and really establish. And actually kind of, I said to them, the ghost of, of sort of the Lazides still lives here amongst <laughs> us. Um, but but, but in, in a good way, it's like almost that deposit of faith, that deposit of personality, that deposit of gift has left a legacy of being a church which yeah, loves to reach God. and save and rescue the lost. And a lot of it, and it may be through personal stories you've had with these two, has just deposited that into the church. And so it's great to have them here. I'm just going to, I'm going to give it to Joe because yeah. you're going to get a chance to chat yeah, in a minute yeah. anyway. You won't be able to shut me up in a minute. I <laughs> just tell us a little bit. So when were you here? Where did you go from here? And what sort of life in that little gap? That would be wonderful. Just a, yeah, a just, a, just a little gap of 30 odd years. So we were here um, 89 to 92 um, and then we had um, Amy, our eldest, when we were here. And then we left to go to, in 92, we left to go to Newcastle, um, up, which was great. And we had our second child there. Then we were there two years and we went over to America. And then we went to South Africa, Cape Town, South Africa. And we've been there 27 years. So we we're also only meant to be there a couple of years. But, I mean, it's Cape Town. How can you move from Cape Town? <laughs> it's beautiful. So that's where we are now. And we're absolutely loving it. 
So, yeah, that's what happened. We had another two children there. Um, now we've got grandchildren. Um, yeah, anything? Church you part of. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, actually, yeah. So we do send, we bring greetings from Jubilee Community Church. That's the church we're in. So we are, um, Lex and I lead the congregation in actually right in the city centre. So we've got three congregations, two that meet in one place in the main building, and then we're in the city centre um, called um, Jubilee Cliff. Um, and yeah, well, Jubilee sends their greetings to you mm. all the way from sunny Cape Town. Um, yeah, so that's what we do. Um, I personally, I'm involved in a lot of the women's things, women's Bible studies and mums and tots groups, but also we have a lot of social ministries that we run in Jubilee, and I'm, um, I'm involved in quite a few of those as well. So, yeah, very, very busy life in Jubilee. And, um, and so Lex and Joe are over because the family churches that we're part of, New Grounds, has a leadership conference next weekend in Mid-Sussex. And so Lex and Joe are over for that leadership conference. There's a connection now of Jubilee have recently come into the New Ground family of churches, which is wonderful because it's just reignited a little bit of that friendship. And so when we knew they were around, Dave just very kindly said, would you love Lex and Joe to be with you? They'd love to be in Eastbourne. They'd love to see friends they haven't seen for years. They'd, uh, they'd love to be around on the Sunday morning. So we were straight away like, yes, we would love them to be here. So it's just wonderful to have Lex and Joe. If you've never met them before, please you know, have a chat with them afterwards and bits and pieces. We're actually having an evening tonight at seven o'clock. We're just going to be sharing sort of lessons of ministry and life and what it is just to follow Jesus and be evangelistic in the nature of the things that they do. And so we've invited some of the leaders already and some people have replied, but it's such an open invite. If you'd just like to get to know them a bit more or come and spend the evening with us, it'll be seven o'clock here in the King Centre. Just come into the foyer and we'll head to one of the rooms upstairs that we'll be in. But why don't we just put our hands together and give a huge welcome to Lex and Joe. And I'm going to pass to Lex and Joe. Yeah, I'm going to get it. It's there. <clears throat> well, it is, uh, it is great to be with you guys. And I'm going to put my timer on so that I don't speak for too long. Although there's not really much you can do. So this is a little high, but um, great to be back in Eastbourne. It's been quite a long time. Um, as Joe said, we were here from uh, 89 in Ratton School up until 92. We actually came from India. We'd been involved in planning a church in Mumbai, which is a real adventure as well. We love doing that. Um, and then being part of you guys. We obviously had moved to Newcastle before getting into the building, but we did put some money in personally into the building. Yeah. And I said to Don Smith, who was the pioneer pastor that he and I were working together at the beginning, uh, I said, I've got some of this building's money. He said, yeah, it's probably the toilet bowl or something <laughs> like that. I did have a, a chat with Don this morning and he's just, uh, he's doing well, so. <laughs> Fortunately, that's not going to come out on the recording. Um, we're looking at Abraham. If you're here for the first time, we're in a series looking at the great Bible hero, Abraham. And uh, I'm jumping into that. I'm going to, before I get to the text that we look, we're looking at together, which is in Romans 4, I'm going to kind of retell some of the story. Um, the main point that I want to make this morning is this, that even though you and I are sometimes successful and 
sometimes really sinful, sometimes faithful, and sometimes failures, Jesus Christ will get you across the line into the presence of God finally. He will do it. That's the point of today's sermon. And we're going to use Abraham as an illustration. Jesus will not only get you across the finishing line, he will do so spectacularly. Uh, If he can make a success of Abraham, he can make a success of you. If he can get Abraham through to faithfulness, he can do it in your life as well. So before we come to the verses, let's just remember, Abraham, one of the great patriarchs, so-called, one of the great heroes of the Bible, was not an angel. No, he wasn't. I remember the first time I read through the whole Bible. You remember reading through the Bible for the first time? I kind of assumed as a brand new Christian that all the main characters, what they did, God was kind of okay with. I thought, you know, if, if one of these big characters, these big name characters did stuff, then God was somehow giving them the thumbs up or it even kind of motivated it. It's an easy mistake to make. A lot of people, when they read the Old Testament for the first time, are offended or they're confused, thinking that somehow God is okay with everything that's in there, but he isn't. Half of the, probably more than half of the Old Testament is actually God telling people, what are you doing? This isn't what I said. This isn't what I told you to do. That's a ton of what the Old Testament is. He's frustrated with people that he's given promises to. So Abraham himself is a flawed character. That's what I've called the sermon actually. Abraham, our flawed father of faith. Abraham is a flawed character. The promise of Abraham to Abraham was that all the nations will be blessed through you in Genesis 18. And you've heard some of this already in the series. In Genesis 22, again, all the nations will be blessed through you. So what happens to the first nation that Abraham goes to? He gets deported. He gets kicked out. He's the father of faith, but you'd think he's the father of fear. He says to Sarah, his wife, she had a slightly different name then, don't worry about that. Look, I've got an idea. We will say, you're my sister. Because if we say, you're my wife, they'll kill me. And then they'll just take you. Where did that come from? You ever thought, you know, you read this thing, oh yeah, yeah, that's right, that's what they did. Where did that idea come from? Fear. Came from fear. So they go to Egypt. She agrees to the lie. They agree to it together. Lo and behold, she gets taken off to Pharaoh's harem uh, anyway, and then God punishes Pharaoh with some agonizing skin condition. We don't know exactly what it was. And he sends her back to Abraham. She says, she's your wife. Why did you do this to me? And they get kicked out. This, friends, is the beginning of the global expansion of the good news, of the promise of God to the nations. And the believers immediately start messing it up. Does this sound familiar? We immediately, we mess it up. But God's good. He gives Abraham the promise again. Through Abraham, blessing will come to the whole earth. But Abraham says, but how can, how can that be? I don't have any kids. I don't have any children. And God tells him, look at the stars. You remember the story. 
Your own offspring will be more than all these stars that you can. Now, I know in Eastbourne, when you look up, you just see clouds. This is a, a wonderful exception to that basic rule. Um, but at, at night time, if you're out of the city and you're in the countryside, it's unbelievable how many stars you can see. That's how many offspring you'll have. And so Abraham believes that promise and it's credited to him as righteousness. He believes the promise and he's made right with God. And then nothing happens. Nothing happens. No offspring appear. Sarah's now convinced that she can't have children. She's convinced that Abraham's offspring cannot be achieved through her. She's in this strange position of having a promise from God and it not coming to pass and yet somehow feeling that she's responsible for it not coming to pass and she has to do something to make this promise come to pass. Does that sound familiar? Where (laughs) you know what God said is true, but you feel like you need to help a little bit, kind of something needs to be done. And so she begins to manoeuvre and to manipulate. She reasons, look, something needs to be done to get this promise going. We can't just sit around Abraham. You know, we need to do something here. I can't have children, but the seed, the, the offspring are going to come through Abraham. So I've got an idea, a solution. What's the solution? Now, again, you know, she makes some daft solutions. We've had some daft ideas as well. Not as bad as this one. She offers her personal assistant to Abraham to sleep with her, the servant. She says to Abraham, here, sleep with her. Technically, it'll be your offspring, even though it's not according to the promise. What does Abraham say? Well, right you are then. I, I, I will do this for you. I... Literally, that's what he says. Does he object? Does he say no? That's not how I supposed. He should have said no. When I believed this promise from God, I knew it was a God promise, something that only God could accomplish, not something that we could make happen. But he doesn't say that. He says, darling, I'll do my duty. And so he sleeps with Hagar. She has a son. It's a nightmare. You heard about it a couple of weeks ago if you were in church. And um, then three mysterious strangers appear. I don't know if you got to this bit yet. And they they tell uh, Abraham, listen, Sarah is going to get pregnant. It's like, oh, Sarah is going to get pregnant and she's going to have a child. Sarah's in the tent and she can hear them talking and she laughs to herself. And they say, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. She lies. I didn't laugh. And the Lord says, but you did laugh. And off they go to the next place. And once again, out of fear, they lie. Again, it's unbelievable. It's like, didn't you learn from the last one? They go to the next place, they lie again. She's not my sister, uh, she's not my wife. She is my sister. And this is the deceptive power of fear. Still, because of fear, they make this misstep once again. And she gets taken off once again to sleep with the ruler. But this time, Abimelech, this time God intervenes. 
before anything happens. Now, we don't really know if anything happened the first time, but th in the second instance, we, it's clear nothing happened, and they get deported again. <laughs> this, is to the this is the church to the nations, isn't it? This is the beginning of global mission. And finally, thankfully, Sarah conceives. Praise God. In her old age, it is a miracle. It is a God happening. And they call their son Isaac. Anyone remember what Isaac means? Laughter. Brilliant. It means laughter. Isn't that lovely? So to our text for today, Romans chapter 4. Abraham's decision-making was a bit of a disaster, wasn't it? His ability to make the right decision there as a couple, but he believed God's promise and he got through in the end. Maybe your decision-making hasn't always been great. <laughs> Chuckles from the front row. Maybe you've been afraid and that was why you lied and then you got into more trouble. Maybe you regret not living a consistent, dependable Christian life. Well, here in Romans 4 is very great encouragement. Paul is explaining how a person gets right with God. And he's teaching that a person gets right with God not through doing religious duties really well, not through moral excellence, not through weighing up the scales and it turns out you're better, you've done more good things than bad things, but through faith. You get right with God through believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead. Through faith is how you actually are made right with God. And he's in the middle of arguing this case to a church that's in Rome. He's never visited that church. He's writing this letter to that church and he's telling them this is how it happens. He wants to make sure they've got it, they've got it right. Now, of course, the <coughs> and his point is, this is not an innovation. This is how it's always been. And he refers to our hero, small age, Abraham. This is how it was for Abraham. The legalists, of course, are really concerned because they think that if getting right with God is just on the basis of faith and not by keeping God's law and by moral performance, there'll be no restraint on the people. You know, if it's all just by faith and there's no kind of restraining principle in, written in the law, then it's going to be chaos. Paul makes this amazing point that Abraham and David were justified, were accepted by God purely on the basis of their faith and not on their religious performance or as we've just read, a potted history of his behaviour. He wasn't made right with God because of any of this behaviour or any of the course corrections. He was made right with God by faith. So let's pick it up in verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... Wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. We'll come back to that. However, to the one who does not work, 
but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. So he breaks his argument into three shocking parts and they are shocking. First, the prize of perfect righteousness goes to the one who does not work but merely believes in Christ. Second, that the object of God's favour is surprisingly the ungodly person. And third, on the basis merely of belief, the ungodly person receives an eternal credit of righteousness and is totally accepted and loved by God. Everything about this is counterintuitive, not as we would expect it to be. This goes against all our understanding of work and reward and effort and earning wages and earning favour. It's flipped on its head. So let's get into those three points. First of all, not by works, but by faith. Now to the one who works, wages are credited as a gift, not as a gift, sorry, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Your wages are an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. In your job, when you work, you should get paid a decent wage. This is an illustration that everyone should be able to understand. Working or not working, people would understand the illustration that he's using. It's owed to you. If you've done work for someone, your wages are owed to you, but not with God. There's no amount of work that you can do to earn His favour. You cannot earn a ticket to heaven. It's not possible. You can only be acceptable to God by surrendering your self-righteousness, your evaluation of your own goodness. You can only become acceptable to God by surrendering all what you think you've earned, all the credit that you think you have, surrendering it to Him and believing in Jesus Christ as your only hope. Amazing. You get right with God by faith not by works. You are accepted into His holy presence by faith alone, not by your own goodness. Do you think, what? That's not right. Is that right? This is Christianity. Everything else is a deformed version of it. This is Christianity. He's taught it already in Romans chapter 3, verse 22. This righteousness in other words, the basis on which you would enter the presence of God, this perfect righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Some Christians really need to hear that. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely, Jew and Gentile, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And he argues that this is what Abraham had discovered because a large number of those who would have heard the letter to the Romans read would have been Jews listening in and Gentiles. There's kind of a, if you read through the book of Romans, there's a dual audience all the time. He's teaching both Jew and Gentile all the way through. He says, Abraham discovered this. Abraham found this. Abraham enjoyed this. He experienced the same grace gift of righteousness apart from religious efforts or excellent morality. Both Abraham and David were sinful. They were ungodly, but God gave them his righteousness freely as a gift. It's by grace. God doesn't owe you anything. Justification, being made right with God, is a gift of grace. You enter by grace, you're sustained by grace, you're chosen by grace, you're called by grace, you're justified by grace, you're sanctified, which means getting better and more like Jesus. You're sanctified by grace and you'll be glorified by grace. It's grace from first to last. It's all of grace. So to the one who doesn't work, in other words, doesn't rely on their own goodness, to the one who doesn't work but believes in Christ, their faith is credited as righteousness, just like Abraham. They are declared righteous by God. What? Righteous by God. It's an absolute stunner. They shift from death to life, from darkness to light, from ungodliness to loving righteousness. What? Abraham believed. That's the first point. It's not by works, but by faith. Secondly, Paul argues, the object of God's favour. Let's have a look at him. The ungodly. Pardon? This is a shocker. (coughs) The second shocker here is that the object of this amazing grace, the the, the recipient, the the person who, who receives this is the ungodly person. The person who acknowledges that their, even their best moments are useless. It's a staggering reality to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's so shocking. We think surely God would justify the person who's having a go. Wouldn't you? Surely God would justify the person whose gap is trying. No one's perfect, right? But we say, surely, you know, a person's good works would tip the scales slightly. I mean, let's be reasonable. The Bible says, impossible. You're ungodly. Impossible. The stain of sin is right there. Doesn't matter if you did as many, it doesn't matter if you did a hundred Mother Teresas for the rest of your life, it wouldn't remove the stain of sin. You're ungodly. But what's this? God justifies the ungodly. Hello? The same Bible that tells me I'm a sinner, the same Bible that describes to me very clearly that I'm ungodly, 
in my sin before Christ is the same Bible that says God justifies the ungodly. Another door opens up. You really only can come into that second one by going through that first one. You have to go down a little bit to go up a lot. (laughs) When we came to Christ, we were ungodly. But He started working in us, didn't He? You remember? That's the point. There's no difference between those who respected the Bible and those who didn't respect the Bible. We were all lost. Some were crazy. Some of us were like the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son who goes off and he does crazy stuff, reveling in sin. And when we turned to Christ, we were justified, we were cleansed, we were totally forgiven and there was a celebration. Some of us though, were sensible. We were not like Him. We weren't like Him at all. We were in church. (laughs) We were good. We were being obedient. We were the good person. And the good person says, I want what's owed to me. It's an, there's an obligation. And God says, no, there's no obligation to you at all. It's all of grace. Whether you're you know, a radical sinner or whether you are a respectable sinner, radical in its own way as well. You know, however you're covering it. <laughs> We get through the same way by grace. At one point, Jesus asked, uh, sorry, the disciples asked Jesus this question. What works must we do to satisfy God? What, what, are the, what, are the work, what must we do to do the works that God requires? John 6. Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Oh, here comes a work. Here comes a work. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This teaching is consistent throughout the scriptures. God can transform the most godless person you know into a saint. Don't give up. Don't give up praying for them. Don't give up tactfully, (laughs) but consistently I remember um, a family member said to me, oh, they're not yet converted. Oh, in the first time, first, when we first met you, this is not yet a believer. You know, actually he called me a name I won't repeat because we're in church. You were a right something. All the time talking about Jesus, talking about this and that, trying to get us to go to church. And you've really mellowed over the years. It's wonderful to see. I thought, oh man. I've totally lost the plot. We mustn't, let's not aim for being respectable. We've got to be a gospel people still. God can transform. He can do it. You can't do it, but he can do it. Don't give up praying for your parents or your kids or neighbours or that person. You just think that person is an ungodly person over there. Well, the Bible says God justifies the ungodly. It's possible. Don't give up. Difficult, some difficult person at work. Don't give up. Keep praying. Anyway, first you get right with God by faith. Second, he justifies the ungodly like Abraham, like you and like me. And then lastly, thirdly, 
total acceptance and forgiveness. This is what the gospel preaches. It's so outrageous. And it's a shocker again. Third shocker. Shocker number three. Justification. This righteousness, this justification means total forgiveness and acceptance. Total acceptance to the one who acknowledges that they're ungodly and who submits to Christ's justifying love. You get complete acceptance. Believing him, as many of us in the room know, means believing and understanding that he died on the cross in our place for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross, he was being punished in your place and in my place. And he died for our sins and your sins died in him. That's where they went. On the third day, he was raised from the dead and he's alive right now, still drawing people, still a good shepherd drawing people to himself. It's not the passage of time. Christian, listen to me. It's not the passage of time that makes you feel better, like it's over. What, what removes the stain of sin? Not the passage of time. Not the fact that, well, everyone does it. Not, I acted out of character. You know, I, this is the moment. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. From all sin. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses you from your sin. Non-believer, nearly believer, complete and total believer, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. To him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You were bankrupt. You were in an impossible crisis of debt. The law condemns you. Your conscience condemns you. Death and hell are waiting. But you heard there was a saviour. There was a friend of sinners who came and who paid your debt in full. And you believed it. You believed it. And you asked, can I follow you? Please, could I be a follower of yours? We're not a church begging for people to follow Jesus. To hear Jesus Christ say to you, follow me, is one of the highest, if not the highest privilege humanity can experience. To hear Jesus say to you, follow me. I forgive you, my child. Come to me, all you who are weary, is a high, high privilege. We're not begging anyone to do anything. Jesus is calling people to himself, hallelujah. And you said, would you be my master? Can I follow you? And it wasn't only that your existing debt was wiped out, it was, but you also received some credit too. And then not a little credit, but an abundance. Christ's own permanent credit of perfect righteousness was placed into your account. 10 minutes before, you were hopelessly bankrupt. Now you have access to heaven. And you say, hold on, that's gotta be wrong. There's a name for that, isn't it? Called creative accounting. That can't be right. But that's the scandal of grace. 
God justifies the ungodly. Let it sink in. Otherwise, we've, what gospel of what good news have we really got? I mean, what are we actually offering if it's not this? If you still think, well, no, yeah, but this and we need a little bit of work there and a little bit there. No, you've missed it. You're throwing away the good news. The Bible says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We don't stay de desiring sin. You know, we are changed on the inside. I'll come to that just now. The Bible says much more than the reign of death, which I think we'd agree is 100% reign over humanity, much more than the reign of death will those who receive the abundance of grace abundance of grace. You, were, you said, please forgive me. Just a little drop of grace is more than I deserve and I'll be eternally grateful. And you were right. We don't deserve even a tiny little drop of grace. But what is God like? What does God do? He gives us an abundance of grace, an abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness that we might reign in life. More than death reign, that we might reign in life. What is this? This is such treasure, <coughs> we never even knew it existed. Some of us went and sold everything we had to buy this field and dig up this treasure we didn't even know existed before. You've got treasure in Christ, you really do. You've got treasure. The guts of it is this, that if you're in Christ, you've forgiven and it's not a small thing. It's a massive thing. To become a Christian and to follow Christ is a massive thing. It transforms everything. It reorients everything. It's a huge deal. You say, well, if it's all by faith, surely I can just then sin to my heart's desire. Can't I? I can just sin forever because if I'm justified by faith, Paul says, no. The legalist is just at the shoulder saying, yeah, get back to the law. We've got to have the law. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Why? Because if you've been justified, something happened in you. You were changed. This is Romans 6. You were born again, John 3. You were born again. You received a new nature. The old you died. So it wasn't just something that happened outside of you, but something inside. Yes, you were declared righteous on the outside, but, but something happened to you on the inside too. Both are true of the Christian. We know, says Paul, that our old self was crucified. So it's objective and subjective. It's outside and it's inside as well. As well. So where does the restraint come from then? If we're forgiven by faith, if it genuinely is, where's the restraint then? Is there some kind of restraining order on our behaviour? Yeah, but it's internal. The Holy Spirit is given to us and pour, then poured out upon us and guides and is grieved and helps us become more like Christ. Hallelujah. The justified persons, the Christians' desires have changed. You now love God and you want to live a life that's pleasing to Him. And when you sin, you feel bad. Oh, I don't think I'm, I don't, I'm not sure I'm a real Christian because I sinned again and I feel terrible about it. That alone is a little piece of evidence that you've changed. The fact that you know even blasphemy is wrong. I say even, forgive me, but blasphemy is even that kind of thing. It's like, oh, I can't, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't be there, do that, watch this, whatever it is. 
it's a, it's a signal to you there's been an inner change, even if it feels like a small thing. Paul argues that's what Abraham experienced. And that's what all believers experience. And he illustrates that by going to David. He says, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You know what a transgression is, don't you? It's when you've seen the sign, do not trespass, and then you deliberately cross the line. So it's a conscious thing. This kind of sin is a deliberate sin. It's not accidental, it's deliberate. Some of the translations say lawless deeds. Jesus said you can be totally forgiven. Let me set it up for you in an imaginative way. Let's say it's the day of judgment, okay? It's the day of judgment. The devil is standing at your side to accuse you. He actually, in reality, won't be there at that point. He's already thrown into the lake of fire. But just for the sake of the illustration, it's a day of judgment. You're before the Lord. The devil he is there standing now to accuse you. But in that day, standing there, and it's your turn. It's your turn now. And Jesus says to you, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Wonderful. And you step forward and the devil interrupts and says, oh, just Lord, just before you go on, I just need to remind you that he committed this sin. Well, the angel refers to the books and he opens it to the correct page in your history. And then he says, actually, no, this sin is covered. So it's fine. And the devil said, oh no, hold on a second. There's another one. It was worse than that. I started with the lower ones. There's some bigger sins. This one, this one will really count. The angel again turns to the right page and he says, no, that sin, the Lord will never count against him. Wow. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed. Do you know what blessed means? This is like blessed. We don't deserve this. We don't take advantage of this. We rejoice in this. <coughs> blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. What a blessing. The New American Standard says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. We're back to accounting again. It's no longer in your debit column. Even accountants can rejoice at that. <laughs> the New Living Translation, the New Living Translation says, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Even those with criminal records can rejoice at that. So if you're an accountant and you have a criminal record, there's a double blessing for you this morning. Isn't that great? Now, there may be consequences now of your behaviour. Of course there are and of our sin, but the eternal consequences have been absolutely eradicated. The Lord is not going to count it against you. It's just amazing. That Joy was Abraham's. That's Paul's point. Abraham actually experienced this. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. 
And he rejoiced about it. And they're like, what are you talking about? This, Abraham knew these things. So did David. David said, I was always beholding the Lord before me. Talking of Jesus, Peter says in Acts 2. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And if you have believed in Jesus, it's credited to you as righteousness. And if you're about to believe in Jesus, it will be credited to you as righteousness. If you're a Christian, you are righteous, freely as a gift. Therefore, live righteously. Don't go back to the Abraham story that you used to have. You're truly forgiven. So we can go and live for Jesus, amen? We can go and preach Jesus. We've got fantastic news. We can spread the gospel, hopefully without getting deported from different countries. Until the number of his followers are like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Let's stand and we're going to pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Yeah, Lord, we look at the life of Abraham as we're studying through it and we, we do see flaws. He's a, a father of faith, but a flawed father. And yet, and yet, he was justified fully and freely by your grace. Lord, as we look at our lives, our own lives, we, we'll, we, sometimes the devil is keen to remind us of our flaws, our failings. But Lord, you've said I've removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. <laughs> he will remember their sins no more. Amazing. We read about these guys in the New Testament. We think, what? Is the story the same? Because God has forgiven their sins. Wiped them away. I pray God for us as believers today that you would help us to make these things our own in our hearts, that we would live in the joy of knowing we're totally accepted by you, completely freed from our past sins. You've forgiven us, hallelujah. If you're struggling with condemnation this morning, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the authority of His Word, through your faith in Him, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. They are wiped away. They are clean. You're clean now. You're cleansed by the power of His Word and by the infilling power <coughs> of His Spirit. <coughs> You're made right with Him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Will you receive it now? Come on. <coughs> I'm not going to get you to identify your sin in any way. It's, it may be prominent in your mind. Maybe no one knows. Just lift it to the Lord now. Your sins are forgiven. My son, your sins are forgiven. My child, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. 
I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. We receive it, Lord. We receive it, Lord. And if there's anyone here this morning, you don't yet know if that's true for you, if your sins are forgiven, if you have in reality been accepted by Christ. You're not sure if you've crossed that clear line of conversion. You're not sure if you've given your life to Christ and you've said to him, you know, come into my life. I want you in my life. I want to encourage you. Maybe today is your day. Maybe this is the moment where the good shepherd calls to you, come, follow me. Maybe today is the day where you say, I hear it, Lord. I hear your voice and I will come to you and I will follow you. Is there anyone like that here today? I want to pray a prayer for you. Would you just lift your hand up high? If right now that's where you are, you're saying, I want this for myself. Wonderful. Anybody else? Wonderful. There's a couple of hands. There's three. Keep your hand up high. Keep your hand up high. This is it. Today, the precious Lord Jesus, the one who's always loved you, is saying, it's time. It's time. There's three hands up. Lord, I pray for these three precious souls. Help them, Lord, to put their trust in you right now and say, here I come, Lord. Just say it to the Lord in your own heart. There's two men and a woman here. I give my life to you, Lord. I give my life to you. I turn my life over to you right now. I hear your call to follow me. And here I come, Lord. I will follow you from this day forth and be yours in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your generosity. Shall we worship together? Never go back to legalism. Never return to that trap of works righteousness. Be holy, but be holy from a devotion to Christ. Let's worship together.